Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure that to be joined by Peter Peeling. Peter Peeling, or should I say Professor Peeling, is an applied sports physiologist. He has a PhD in iron deficiency in endurance athletes and is currently both the Director of Research at the Western Australian Institute of Sport, as well as being a professor in the School of Human Sciences at the University of Western Australia. So welcome to the podcast, Pete. Hey, thanks for having me, Liz. Great to be here. Can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and your history as a physiologist? Yeah, no worries. Um, so, well, I, I guess I started my studies, if you like, back in early 2000s, 2001, I think it was. And at the time, I was kind of running quite a bit and, um, and enjoying learning lots about sports science. And over that period of time, uh, actually, I, I was quite an iron deficient runner. I was a hack runner, so I was no good, wow. but I was, I was iron deficient through my undergrad degree. Which didn't help. No, and um, and so that led me into, I guess, honours and, and just getting interested in research and, and the like, and, and then I kind of had to think about what I wanted to do for a PhD, and, and so I had this kind of iron deficiency issue that had bugged me for the last four years and um, an opportunity to do some research, so I started to look into the influence of iron deficiency on athlete populations and see if I could school myself in how to be better and, and actually because I was no good at running, took over my <laughs> time and energy and um, and therefore ended up kind of studying, uh, doing a PhD and looking specifically at iron. And then from there, I, I left the research in a sense and started to work in industry. So I went to work at the WA Institute of Sport for four years, just for an Olympic period, but I'd done a bit of work prior to that with the national hockey team. So I was involved in the high performance setting and moved into a role as a sports physiologist at the Institute of Sport for, for a few years, but always kind of kept my hand in the game at the university. And then the roles kind of switched after the London Games where a job came up at the university and I was like, well, I can go back and do a bit more research and, and see if I can still keep my hand in the applied world while I did that. And then that led into where I'm at now, which is a bit of a joint role between the university where I teach undergrad sports science and in the institute setting where I kind of look after the research centre at the WA Institute of Sport and we have a host of projects that are on the go there that kind of some of it deals with the topic we're here to talk about today, iron deficiency, um, but we span right through to psychology. So we're looking at emotional resilience in athletes. We've got some um, biomechanics and sports engineering work on the go where we're looking at dynamic waves in swimmers. And we've got lots of physiology stuff on the go. And we're specifically interested mm. at the moment in looking at the course changes to the 2028 rowing regatta at the Olympics being moving from a 2000 meter event to a 1500 event. So we're looking a lot at what the right. en energetics of that will be. So we've got a bit of a range of stuff going on, but really my, my pet favorite, if you like, is, is kind of this area of, uh, of iron metabolism in athletes and probably where I've, I've spent most of my time in the last 15, 20 years. Yes, and you've been quite prolific, you and your students. So let's delve a little bit more deeply into that. Yeah. Firstly, I guess, why is iron important for athletes? Yeah, good question. So I guess iron is, is pretty fundamental to the system, the human system, and specifically some of the things that iron are related to are really important to athletes. And I like to talk about, I guess, four key things that iron's involved in. One of those 
is red blood cells. So to get oxygen around the body, uh, which is super important to exercise, as you know, uh, we need to have healthy red blood cells. And our red blood cells are made up of iron and the iron in our red blood cells is what carries the oxygen around the body. So in order to have um, healthy red blood cells and good supply of oxygen to the muscles, we need to have good levels of iron in the body. So that's probably the most important aspect of iron. But iron's also involved in the processes that allow us to produce energy at a, at a more cellular level. So we have these little kind of powerhouses in our muscles called mitochondria. And that's what provides us with the energy to be able to move. And iron's actually really important in the really kind of microscopic processes that happen at that level to help us produce energy. So we need to have good iron stores for that to happen. Iron's also really important in our immune function. So to help prevent us from getting sick, we want to have good iron stores um, and a good metabolism of iron to, to kind of keep us healthy. So we don't want to get sick if we're training uh, lots. And then the last kind of the fourth one is iron super important in our cognitive processing. And lots of our sports that we kind of play in require us to make good decisions and uh, we want to have good, healthy iron stores if we want to be cognitively on top of our game as well. So those four things, our red blood cells, our energy production at the mitochondrial level, our immune system and our cognitive function are, are really the four key areas that iron are important to. And as athletes, we want to make mm -hmm. sure we have good iron stores to ensure those things are taken care of. Perfect. And so what are the symptoms if your iron levels are low? Like, for example, when you were iron deficient, what were some of the things that you were experiencing? Yeah, so um, it's, it's funny because the, the symptoms are, are super vague, right? They're, and the key one is that you feel really lethargic. But we feel lethargic for lots of reasons. We might be having a bad day. Things aren't going our way. We might be tired. We've got life pressures and all that sort of thing. But it's this persistent fatigue that starts to impact our, our training. That's when we generally go, mm, not feeling great, I probably should go to the doc. And uh, what will happen then is the doctor will probably take a blood panel just to make sure that you're okay and check a bunch of things. But one of the things that they'll usually check when you go to the doctor and say, oh, I'm really tired, is they'll check your iron levels. And it's not uncommon that when you are kind of feeling a bit tired and lethargic and just don't have the energy that you usually have, that when you have these blood panels done, you, you might find that your iron levels are low. And that's a that's kind of a great outcome, right? Because it's not it's, it's something that's fixable generally. Um, yeah. So that so you might yeah. then the doctor might then talk to you about how you would improve your iron stores to see if that helps with um, your feelings. But I guess the key feeling is is lethargy and fatigue um, that you start to feel mm -hmm. when your iron levels are, are being impacted, and and it's a result of those things we just talked about. So at the cellular level, you're not uh, able to produce energy as effectively. That could be a reason why you're fatigued. If your red blood cells aren't at their kind of optimal capacity, that might be a reason why you're fatigued because the, the amount of oxygen going around the body is lower and, and so forth. So, so it kind of links okay. into those things we just talked about, but certainly fatigue is, the, is probably the key factor that you'd experience. And do you find that some people also experience a bit of the cognitive dysfunction? You know, you, you mentioned the role of iron in the cognitive functions as sometimes people have more symptoms related to just you know not quite being switched on cognitively more so than the physical yeah and you do hear that and and if you look at a lot of the questionnaires that are relevant to iron deficiency they talk about brain fog 
and, and just mm-hmm. kind of cloudy thoughts and not feeling on top of your game. And I think that kind of in, in conjunction with feeling a bit flat and fatigued, those two things sometimes go hand in hand. But, yeah, certainly a bit of a, a brain fog is not uncommon either. Okay. And you mentioned the blood test that your doctor might do. You know, a standard test if you're not an athlete would be haemoglobin. That seems to be part of a general panel. But do you need to dig a bit deeper, like for athletes in particular? Yeah. So if you went to the doc and they were to test your iron levels, they'd they'd probably look at a panel that's relevant to iron. and, And that panel usually includes probably, let's say, two key markers, one of those, as you mentioned, Liz, is, is haemoglobin. And we have some set levels where if haemoglobin's below a certain level, we'd start to consider whether your iron deficiency is impacting your red blood cell production. The other one is your serum ferritin. So, you, so guys listening may have heard of that term before, your ferritin levels, and that's basically your stores of iron that are in your body. So those two values are the key ones that the that the doctors usually look at to see whether someone has an iron deficiency or not, your serum ferritin levels and your haemoglobin. The problem with those and with athletic populations is both of them can be impacted by activity. So if you're really dehydrated, you can impact your haemoglobin levels. And if you've just done an exercise session, the serum ferritin can go up just as a result of the activity you've just done. So what some of our kind of recommendations from the work that our team's done looks at it is kind of making these recommendations of when to go and get your blood tested as an athlete. So you need to make sure that you go in the morning before you've done any exercise, preferably on a rest day, in a well-hydrated state, and when you're not sick, because if you're sick, being sick is almost similar to doing exercise. It can elevate some of these markers. And so you might you might disguise whether there's a, an issue there if you don't go in, in a, a rested state in the morning to to get your blood done and then there's some other panels that maybe you could look at for athlete populations so because hemoglobin changes so much based on your hydration status there's actually a measure called hemoglobin mass where it kind of takes out the impact of the variability from fluid levels uh, in your body and you can look at the total amount of hemoglobin in the system but it's it's quite hard to get and it's quite nuanced so if you've got listeners who are in the kind of institute or high performance setting they might work with a sports scientist who could look at a hemoglobin mass for them um, but you you kind of probably your everyday athlete may not get access to that sort of thing and the other thing that doctors usually look at as well is a, a marker of inflammation um, in your blood panel so usually that's like a, a c-reactive protein or something like that just to make sure that the individual isn't sick because if they are sick um, these levels will of uh, of your iron markers might be elevated similar to exercise yeah so you get a false reading yeah yeah Okay, cool. And so really there's no other means of assessing iron status other than a blood test or the haemoglobin mass? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are a, f- a few other markers. So usually you'd start with a, a bit of a diagnostic check on just talking to someone and then the blood sample would look at the ferritin and the haemoglobin. You'd also get a measure of transferrin. It's basically a measure of how much uh, iron's being moved around the body. Uh, and then you'd get a... a uh, percentage of the saturation of that ferritin so how much of that of that transferrin sorry so how much of that transferrin is full with iron so the combination of those wow. markers can be used to give you a clearer picture of, of iron deficiency but yeah. for the most part practitioners tend to use serum ferritin and hemoglobin as their two go-tos mm-hmm. okay and so where do we get 
iron from? In terms of managing iron stores and making sure we have enough, where do we get that from? Yeah, so generally um, we try to promote and look for foods that are that are full with iron. And the, the best food source we can get that is, uh, I guess, highest iron containing tends to be in red meats. And the reason mm-hmm. that uh, we get so much iron from red meat is because it's in a team form and our body can absorb it really efficiently. And, and really our problems with iron all come down to our gut's ability to absorb iron from the food we're eating. So red meat is a really good source because our body can quite effectively, in comparison, get the iron out of that food and, and utilise it. But obviously that doesn't always work if we have, say, a vegetarian athlete or an athlete that doesn't eat a lot of red meat. Um, so the other forms of iron that we can get in the diet are from leafy green vegetables and fortified cereals and those sorts of things. But the problem with, say, leafy green vegetables is it's it's in a non-heme form uh, and our body doesn't absorb that sort of iron quite as well as it does in the heme form. So we get a, we have to kind of eat more uh, leafy green vegetables and, and, and those non-meat sources to get the same amount of iron from them just as a result of how effectively we can absorb the iron from that food. So they're our two main sources from food. But then obviously if we're struggling with iron and we're struggling with the amount of food that we have to eat to get that amount of iron, we can look to supplements to make up for the the limited amount of iron that we're getting in our diet. So that's, I guess, a different way that we could look to get our iron source from our diet by supplementing. Mm-hmm. And and so is there a difference between the Need, the iron needs of males versus females or different age groups of athletes? Yeah, there is. So what we tend to find is that female athletes need more iron than male athletes. And the key contributor to that is generally the menstrual cycle. So um, when we, because our, I guess the iron that we consume and store and ultimately use ends up in our red blood cells predominantly, to carry oxygen around our body. If we have any instance where we are suffering some form of blood loss or hemorrhage, we're going to lose iron. So if you look at traumatic cases in hospital where there's a lot of blood loss, those people generally end up anemic when they're fixed mm. up, obviously. And similarly, when you with the female and a female athlete, if you have a regular menstrual cycle, um, that blood loss can result in an increase in iron loss. So we tend to find that uh, menstruating females tend to have a higher iron requirement than their male counterparts and than their non-menstruating counterparts female as well so youth athletes for instance uh, before they they go through their uh, teenage years into to getting a menstrual cycle they don't tend to need as much iron as say a teenage athlete through into into their ages into menopause and then uh, that requirement for an increase in iron intake at menopause tends to come back down again. So we tend to say that male athletes uh, require around eight milligrams of iron per day and female athletes closer to 18. So there's a definite increase in the amount of iron. Yeah, it's quite a big increase, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just from that, Liz, if all we need is 18 milligrams, that sounds fine. But actually, if we're only getting that from leafy green vegetables, we might only absorb 2% of the iron that's in those leafy green vegetables. So actually getting 18 milligrams is quite hard um, if you're only getting 2% of the amount available within a given food source. And and that was what my next question was going to be, is how easy is it to get that, that iron requirement from a, your diet? Is it 
something that's easy to do or something that actually particularly for females is quite challenging yeah it's it's quite challenging and the the challenging part is is really the gut and the gut really controls our ability to get iron in and so where we're getting the iron from uh, really dictates how much of it we're going to absorb and and also what we've done prior to eating is going to dictate how much we absorb so we know that if we exercise uh, we actually get a decrease in the amount of iron that we can absorb as a result of some hormones that are increased during exercise. So we have to think about when we're timing uh, the consumption of our iron because that can really impact the amount that we can absorb. But certainly, to your question, it's, it's actually quite hard to get that amount of iron from food sources because uh, you have to eat a fair amount to be able to get that, that amount of iron requirement from the food you're taking. We, we, some of the literature would say that if it's a, if you've got a meat source, you might absorb anywhere from five to thirty percent of the iron that's in that meat. Uh, whereas if you've got a vegetable source, it could be as low as two percent, and and if you're lucky, as high as twenty percent. Yeah. And if you're deficient, is it can you actually recover that iron level without needing a supplement, or do you think it's really if you're deficient, then you have to use a supplement to get yourself back up to the to the normal range as well as working on trying to improve your dietary iron intake. Yeah, I think it's really hard once you become deficient to do it with just food alone. I think we tend to think about like the limits of where we think healthy iron levels sit and um, we tend to look at that in terms of serum ferritin. So I'm just going to use some numbers here that that we we tend to think about. But a serum ferritin of about 35 micrograms per litre is where we think that, that currently where we think that Um, athletes would want to kind of sit above that level. But what we say is anyone sitting on that level, that's a good opportunity to see if you can alter your diet and see if you can improve your iron stores with a food-first approach. Anyone that sits below that 35 micrograms per litre mark and and into the 20s without an impact on haemoglobin, so in this instance, haemoglobin would be okay. So it's a a deficiency, but it hasn't started to impact your ability to produce red blood cells. They're the people that we think you would probably need more an oral iron supplement to kind of try and fix that problem. And then as you start to to get worse into the issue, so we become anemic and now our red blood cells are starting to be impacted, that's when you might have to take a, a less conservative approach and start to think about other ways that you can bypass the gut to get iron. And that might be working with your doctor to see if there's a process of iron infusion that you could go down. But that, that's generally reserved or it should be reserved for situations where the individual's haemoglobin has started to be impacted. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so with these iron supplements, what's the best, like there seems to be a, a billion and one different iron supplements out there and they all claim to have optimum absorption capacity and some say that they have no effect on the gut and, and things like that. What is the best option or what dose are we looking at yeah you're right it's a minefield isn't it of of options Mm. and if you look at the literature like the literature always comes back to um, the active ingredient being ferrous sulfate so an iron salt and i i think that's more because the like lots of the literature that's done in this area uses that as their supplement so that tends to get the biggest weighting of what has the best effect but if we look at the literature, it would say a ferrous sulfate-based iron tablet, like a, the ones in Australia, for instance, where Ferrograd C is a pretty 
common iron supplement that's used. That's a ferrous sulfate tablet that contains about 105 milligrams of of elemental iron. So it says on the packet, this is another interesting part, that there's 365 milligrams of iron in the tablet, but actually only 110 milligrams of that is elemental iron that is useful for us. Uh And then we're thinking we've got to absorb, we might absorb uh, some small percentage of that, maybe 30% of that. So actually that's why the tablets are much higher than our recommended daily intake because we're not going to absorb all the iron that's in that that product. Um, some of the newer iron supplements that are around, look at these enteric coatings that are on the surface of the tablet that you're consuming and, and the, the benefit that's proposed with that is it reduces the gastrointestinal upset. And lots of athletes that are consuming iron, oral iron tablets tend to get constipated and they have some issues with their GI tract. So the, um, the enteric coating tends to make the, the tablet less harsh on, on the gut. And then there's some other products like Maltopa, which are an iron supplement mixed with a maltodextrin component. And uh, these tablets are also suggested to enhance the um, iron absorption with a co-transport mechanism, but but certainly to try and reduce the gut irritation with the maltodextrin combination. So there's there's lots of newer products coming out. The Maltopo seems to be quite good in terms of efficacy, having similar outcomes in, in terms of increasing serum ferritin as a product like a ferrous sulfate. Um, but the problem with these is it takes a bit of time, so you've got to commit to it. And it generally takes about eight weeks for you to start to see a, a positive impact on your iron stores from taking an oral iron supplement. So it's very slow. Um, and the chances yeah. of getting GI distress during that period or you know, constipation or anything like that are, are quite high. So some of the research that we've recently done has looked at, well, if you've got someone who gets high GI upset, what can you do about that? And we, we did a study where we supplemented some athletes every day and we supplemented another group of athletes every other day. And in the every other day group, so they effectively had half of the amount of supplement, which cost half the amount too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Both groups over an eight-week period improved their serum ferritin stores by the same amount. It was slightly higher in the everyday oh, wow. group, but not by much. So mm-hmm. it was slightly higher, but not statistically significant. So there was a slight difference there, but effectively they got the same outcome for half the amount of supplement. And the, the, the athletes that were on the every other day supplement protocol had much lower rates of GI upset during the period. So if you are an athlete who is taking an oral iron supplement to try and improve your iron stores and you are getting GI upset, rather than giving up on it, you could try to lower the dose or to spread the dose on every other day and see if you can reduce the symptoms on the gut while still kind of having a positive impact on your overall iron stores. might just allow you to see out the eight weeks a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's really important to understand the length of time because, you know, sometimes athletes are compliant for the first couple of weeks and then it drops off and, you know, whereas this is actually, you know, something you have to commit to over the longer term in in order to have that improvement. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that not a lot of these iron supplements are tested for banned substances. So, you know, I have athletes who are, like, cautious about, taking an iron supplement because they can't get one that's tested for banned substances. Do you think there's any risk with iron supplements and the, the likelihood of testing positive from an anti-doping perspective? Oh, that is a good question, Liz. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to put you on the spot. No, 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 no. no, no. That's, I mean, I, I would, uh, 
I mean, I'd always preface this with there's always a risk with anything, right? You know, if a, if a pharmaceutical company is putting a supplement down a, a line uh, that has other medications going down the same line, then um, you, you'd be you'd want to be cautious. But I think a lot of these iron companies they they run those down their own line because they're, they're quite a um, a large, I guess, industry of of something that gets made and sold. I don't know of any supplement that is independently tested, but I've never also come across any stories that have resulted in a, a failed doping test that relates back to iron supplementation so i don't know if that's answered your question at all i, I think the risk would be yeah, very low it was, well i mean um, that and there was the issue that we had in the u.s is that none of the ferrous sulfate forms of the iron supplements were tested for banned substances the only ones that were tested were iron bisglycinate which had a much lower dose and and potentially a less effectiveness Mm. and so we were always in this quandary of trying to optimize that iron supplementation without the risk of the athlete testing positive and making sure that they felt secure with that yeah and um that's a that's a great comment i mean if you look at if you look at some of the doping cases that do exist, say go go back to old days in cycling, you'd get these really large increases in red blood cell volume, and all of that kind of links back to EPO stores and iron yeah. stores and that sort of thing. So there's probably a bit of a um, thought process that goes around: hmm, how do you link iron to this stuff? Because it seems really bad, but you don't tend to get those really wild shifts in in hemoglobin or ferritin levels from an oral iron supplement. So you probably wouldn't be raising red flags in that sense. But certainly the the product itself, I don't know of any, like you say, that are independently tested, but I would suggest the risk is very, very low. But certainly um, you could never say there's no risk with anything. And so if you are taking an iron supplement, is there a time of day that's best to take it should you take it in the morning fasted or at the end of the day and and if you is it should it be taken fasted or should you have any sort of food with it mm, also a great question we have done a bit of work in this area where we looked at the impact of exercise and also the consumption of iron time of day in athletes and so we, we use this thing it's called an isotopic tra- tracer so we put this tracer in in the food that athletes were eating and um, we could basically then measure the amount of iron that was in the food in the tracer and the amount that ends up in the body and what we did in this study was we had athletes consume the tracer in the morning and in the afternoon and on one occasion they exercised in the morning and on the other occasion they exercised in the afternoon and what we found was that if the athlete consumed the iron in the morning just immediately after exercise was when we did it. But this, the, we, the thought process is this would actually be relevant to pre-exercise as well. We actually had a greater absorption rate of iron by consuming that iron in the morning. And the reason that we think that is the case is, and that's in comparison to the afternoon, sorry. And the reason we think that's the case is, if you remember before I said there's some hormones that the body produces that reduces the amount of iron that you can absorb from the diet and those hormones are elevated after exercise. That doesn't occur till about three hours ex- after exercise. So there's this little window immediately oh. after exercise where you might kind of miss that peak in the hormone levels spiking. The other thing we know about that hormone is that not only does exercise increase it, but it increases naturally throughout the day. So within the study that we did, we think there was a bit of an effect there of the diurnal, we call it, so the increase throughout the day 
in hepcidin, which is the hormone, kind of reduces the amount of iron that you can absorb in the afternoon. So actually, we think the best time to consume your iron is in the morning. Uh, whether or not yeah. you're fasted is an interesting question because we know that there are some foods that help you absorb iron more effectively. So those foods uh, are foods that are high in ascorbic acid or vitamin C. So if you are to consume your iron supplement with with some sort of food type that is high in vitamin C, you might actually increase the amount of iron that you absorb. But the alternate to that is there are some other foods that reduce the amount of iron that you can absorb from a given meal. And we know those are foods such as foods that are high in calcium and tannins, for instance. So cups of tea and coffee, or having foods with milk, that can reduce the amount of uh, iron that you absorb from a given meal. So so in summary, it's probably best to consume your iron in the morning uh, with a vitamin C source uh, and then give yourself an hour or so before you have any coffees or teas or other foods that might impact your ability to absorb that iron. Because from putting the, the iron source in your mouth to it, kind of getting to your gut and getting out into the body it takes about an hour to two hours for that to happen so it's probably best to consume your iron supplement in the morning before you take any other kind of food sources that might impact your ability to absorb that yeah. iron now i'm going to take this opportunity to plug go and see your sports dietitian who can help you optimize your dietary iron intake as well as give you advice in terms of how best to optimize the impact of, a, of an iron supplement yeah. Um, because it can be quite complicated, as you say, and some, some foods hinder and some foods help. And so there's nice little combinations that can be put together that really support iron status. That's right. And and with all of our work, uh, Liz, we always say, like, if you've got a problem, you should see a sports dietitian. It's relevant to the food side of it. And go to see your sports doctor as well if you feel Doc, fatigued yeah, absolutely. and flat. And Which comes to my other question yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, comes to my other question in that, you know, some athletes just take an iron supplement just in case or because they think, feel like they might have an iron deficiency, but they haven't ever been tested. Is that something that we recommend or we actually want them to see a sports doc or a doc, their, their GP, and get a blood test done? Yeah, I would say don't take a supplement just because you think that it might be useful and you don't know whether it you need to especially with iron so the problem with iron is it's actually quite toxic in high amounts mm -hmm. and so we don't want kind of people indiscriminately just taking a supplement to because they think more is better in this case if you have too much iron it can be toxic to the organs of your body because if you absorb lots of iron there's actually a disease called hemochromatosis and in individuals with hemochromatosis they don't produce the hormone that we talked about before that reduces your ability to absorb iron so these guys are basically freewheeling and they just absorb all the iron that they consume because the body has no regulation of of controlling how much iron they take in so these people start to store that iron in their in their organs and that becomes toxic to their organ so we we don't want athletes thinking, oh, more iron's good because I'll produce more red blood cells. That's absolutely not the case. All that will happen is you'll start to store more in the wrong places and it can be detrimental to you. So you certainly only want to take an iron supplement if you've seen the doc and the doc's suggested that you have an issue with your iron stores. In this case, more certainly is not better. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Can we talk about other things that may contribute to 
low iron or or area specific times in a sport in an athlete's life where they may want to be particularly careful with getting their iron levels assessed um, so I'm thinking down the lines of if they might be going to altitude or using altitude training as a as a form or part of their training any other sort of incidences like that where you maybe want to be particularly aware of what your iron levels are yeah, I think I reckon there's. I mean, there's plenty, but I'd say there's probably three key ones that I'd I'd be considering if I was an athlete. One, if I was a female athlete, I'd be thinking about and working with a medical professional around uh, my menstrual cycle and having really good knowledge of your menstrual cycle. And we're actually hopefully about to start a study that supplements female athletes at certain phases of their menstrual cycle because we know that estrogen mm-hmm. can impact the hormone profile that influences our ability to absorb iron. So we're thinking that if we can get a good picture of the uh, hormone profile during a menstrual cycle, there might be better periods in the menstrual cycle when you can supplement more to get a better effect. So I think, no, but in the meantime, I think knowing your menstrual cycle, if you're a heavy menstrual bleeder, then you you would want to be working with your doctor to make sure that you know what your iron levels are and to see if you can try and improve them if you know that that's that's kind of how your body operates so that's one i think if you're going into a period of really heavy training load and your goal of that period is to aerobically adapt you would want to know your iron levels before going into that and we know that as the duration of a training session increases that you produce more of that hormone that we spoke about before basically in a, in a, I guess it has a positive relationship with the duration and intensity of your training. So during those periods of real heavy training, you probably need to make sure that from a dietary perspective that you're, you're meeting your energy demand so that you know that the amount of iron that you're consuming is, is likely taking care of the deficit that's occurring from the training load that you know your stress that you're putting your body under so that's the second one is during periods of heavy training and then the third one as you mentioned this is if you're going to altitude for a training effect uh, we know that altitude has an impact on the on the kidneys which helps us to produce more erythropoietin or epo which ultimately helps our body to produce more red blood cells and as we spoke about at the start one of the key constituents to a red blood cell is the iron because that's what carries the oxygen. Mm. So we don't have a good supply of iron in our system before we go. We're limiting our ability to adapt to that environment. So knowing your iron stores in the two or three weeks before you go to altitude is handy. Um, If you've got good iron stores before going, so your ferritin levels are up above 100, you probably don't need to do too much. But if you're ferritin stores are down near the 30s, you might want to consider a couple of weeks of iron supplementation before you go to make sure that you've got healthy iron stores when you get there because your iron stores will drop when you're at altitude because you're using more iron uh, to produce those red blood cells and then to have a plan to make sure you're supplementing while you're there to help with that red blood cell adaptation. Cool. Awesome. I'm acutely aware that this is a para sports nutrition podcast, so I'm going to take a little bit of a focus towards para athletes. I know it's not documented in the literature particularly well, but in my experience, there are certainly groups of para athletes that appear to have a higher incidence of iron deficiency and or don't tolerate supplements particularly well and and part of that group is smaller athletes and particularly athletes who have spinal cord injuries or are wheelchair dependent any thoughts on why you think 
that they may, may have a higher incidence of iron deficiency and how would you approach that group of athletes? Yeah, it's it's a great question that I am very limited on my knowledge in in this area. Um, although we have we have some work on it at the moment with the uh, wheelchair basketball group at Wace, who have a lot of athletes on the national team, but that's more in a um, physical demands perspective. But I'm really keen to pursue looking at iron in this group. I look around in, in the literature; you don't find a lot of work out there. But um, what I what I have come across is there's some um, work that looks at profiling parasport athletes. And on the whole, the prevalence rates of athletes being iron deficient in a parasport context is quite similar to able-bodied athletes. Um, some work that I found from just recently in 2020 showed prevalence rates of iron deficiency in female para-athletes was about 30%, which is not too dissimilar to uh, female groups. Uh, of able-bodied athletes that we have a lot of data on. And certainly as um, dependent on the sport type, you tend to see that that can increase up to around 50%, which I'd have no doubt would be mm-hmm. similar in, in uh, female para-athletes. There does seem to be in the literature out there a difference in um, para-sport athletes between males and females as there are in able-bodied sports. And some work that I found previously suggested that female para-sport athletes only tend to meet about 70% of their recommended daily intake of iron whereas males seem to be a little better and generally up around 100 to 140 percent of their daily needs and I, I would suggest that the biggest compromising factor around parasport athletes or sorry one of two parasport athletes maybe not meeting their iron intake requirements is generally the potential for them to not meet their energy demands or to have a lower energy demand than an able-bodied athlete. So we know that the the overall energy intake of an individual can impact the amount of iron they're getting into the system just as a factor of the amount of food they're putting in their body containing iron is lower. So if you're energy restricted in any way, then you're going to naturally get less iron into the system and therefore it would become an issue for you around your iron stores. The other comment that you mentioned there, which it might be a bit anecdotal, but it's practical, Liz, is that you've noticed that it depends on the level or the level of disability, so the and mainly in spinal cord athletes. And I would imagine without knowing too much that the gut innovation in athletes that do have spinal cord uh, issues is quite different to an able-bodied individual. And therefore, if your gut motility is impacted in any way, then that iron's going to pass through the system without being absorbed as effectively. So I'd, I'd have no doubt that, that that gut motility and your ability to absorb iron would be quite impacted if your disability affects your ability to absorb a nutrient in any way. Perfect. And I guess the approach is still looking for ways to optimise dietary iron intake and looking for a source of supplemental iron if once a test is done, if it is, if shows that they're iron deficient, finding the most optimal solution in terms of gut tolerance and an impact on those iron levels over over time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I don't think that part would change too much, but I think probably the 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 rationale behind why we're getting that deficiency is, is probably unique to every individual's uh, level of disability. Yeah. Okay, great. 
Wow, you're a, a wealth of knowledge, as I knew you were. Uh, and so I think we've managed to cover a lot of ground in, in a relatively concise period of time. Any specific recommendations that you have for athletes in general around iron? Yeah, for me, like we kind of touched on before, Liz, I think if, you, if you're feeling lethargic and, and energy depleted, uh, I would suggest like always go see your doc and have a chat about it. And then if you get a, a result on a blood test that suggests you need some work with your iron, depending on the level of that, if it's a food first kind of issue that you can take care of, I would suggest working strong, working hard with your nutritionist or your dietitian to make sure uh, that you're ticking all the boxes to be able to get as much of that micronutrient from um, the foods that you're eating on a daily basis to try and optimize that uh, along with your energy intake. And if it's at a level, if your iron stores are at a level where it's um, beyond what you can do with food, which you, you would discuss with your dietitian anyway, uh, then working with your medical provider to see what the supplement choices might be that would be effective for you and knowing how you react to those and, and, and kind of seeing the course. So trying to, to persist with supplementing for the eight weeks to see if you can have an impact because it's easy to kind of forget to take your supplement or give up on it because your guts aren't really tolerating it so well. But looking at what the strategies are to try and tolerate it and persist for that long term to, to see if you can have an impact from an oral supplement on improving yeah. your iron stores. I think they're the key, but yeah. the key to that is obviously uh, your self-discipline, but certainly working with your team. So your, your um, dietitian and your sports doc are two key people in that um, conversation that would help you along the way. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Pete. One of the things I like to do is to, to get to know my podcast guests a little bit more is ask you what your favourite food is. So, Pete, what's your favourite food? Oh, uh, well, at the moment I'm on the bandwagon of spaghetti and meatballs, which my wife <laughs> makes a really good meatball. And But I say to her um, every time I need a couple of days' notice before it because I do a couple of good long runs in the days leading up to and then I like to go for it on the spaghetti and meatballs because that's my favourite. So, But I need a two-day lead-in so I can work up a good energy deficit to absolutely smash it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not a competition. Well, in our house, it's about who can get to the uh, meatballs first because, uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> so you know, it is a competition. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks, Pete, for your time and for your expertise. I really appreciate it. You've really simplified the message really perfectly for the listeners because I know it, it's certainly an area that can get caught up in lots of very technical terms and <laughs> and concepts. So well done to you for keeping that really well understandable. And uh, hopefully we'll maybe get to talk to you again down the track with uh, about some of the work you've done with the wheelchair basketball team and also some of the other aspects that you're looking at, at with, through the re research at WACE. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. And um, thanks for having me. I think Pete's done a great job of summarising his recommendations. If you're feeling more fatigued than what you think you should be, get it checked by a doc. Make sure they take your ferritin as well as your haemoglobin. And if you need to supplement, make sure you do so over the long term really consistently and get the advice from a good sports dietitian to make sure that you're optimizing your iron intake.
I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please join us next time when we talk to Sean Caven, who is a para-canoe kayak coach.